If you have your Bibles, and I pray that you do, turn to the book of Psalm. We're going to begin a series in the Psalms. <laughs> yes, we are. And um, right. <laughs> we are going to be in Psalm chapter 32 this morning. We're going to read uh, the entire Psalm. So if you have the means and you're able, I'd ask you to stand one more time just to give reverence to reading the living and powerful Word of God. If you need to remain seated, it's okay. Psalm 32. <clears throat> Notice that if you have a title in your, um, in your Bible, and you should, it says, Blessed are the forgiven. And then it says a... Maskeel is how you pronounce that. I'm just going to say a maskeel because I got a little redneck in me. So um, this is a maskeel of David. And in beginning in verse 1, this is what it reads. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Because surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach Him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And here's His counsel. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You can be seated. Let's go Lord in prayer as you see Father, we come to You this morning and we just give You thanks. As already been said, Father, that... Um, you use people like us. Father, we can take no credit for anything. Lord, Lord, our very breath comes from You. Any gift, any ability that we have whatsoever comes from You and You alone. So this morning, I thank You that, Lord, uh, the church recognizes people like us, but Lord, the recognition goes straight back to You. Father, You are the one that, is, that has blessed us. You are the one that has provided everything that we have. And so, Father, we give You praise for it this morning. Father, I pray this morning that, Lord, You would help us to, um, to rightly divide Your Word of truth. Lord, I pray that we would do it um, in such a way that it, it changes the ones that hear it today. Father, I pray that we would not just be people who come into a church service just to say we went to church. Father, I pray that You would help us to, to come in here with, a, with ears to hear, with eyes to see, and with hearts that, that, want to, that want to receive what You want to teach us, Father. 
And so, Father, I pray this morning that You would open Your Word to us. I pray, God, that we would be able to receive it. And Father, I pray that it would change us completely as we leave here today. Father, we love You. Forgive us where we fail You, but thank You, God, as we always pray. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace. Where would we be without it? Father, we love You and we praise You and we ask You for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Over the past um, several years, we've, we've spent the majority of our time in the New Testament. Um, I have for uh, over a year now been telling people I, I, I want to spend some time in the Old Testament and every time I kept saying that I ended up going somewhere else in the New Testament. And this is not necessarily a bad thing because the New Testament is basically just the, um, the um, fulfilling of the Old Testament. And so really what we have in the New Testament are the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the apostles, and basically, what was their Bible? They didn't have a New Testament. What did they have? They had the Old Testament. They preached Christ. They preached the Gospel by going back to the Old Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, this is where Paul told Timothy to make sure that he continues in the Scriptures that he has known. Look what it says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and what you have firmly believed in, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are... Notice this, he's talking about the Old Testament, and look what the Old Testament is able to do for Christians. They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And all Scripture, here again we're talking about the Old Testament, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, when you hear somebody look at you today and say, well, the Old Testament is just that. It's old. No, you need to understand something. The Old Testament used to be all the Bible that they had. It was the Bible that Jesus preached from. It was the Bible that the apostles preached from. It was the Bible that the Apostle Paul told his disciples to make sure you continue in these Scriptures. They've been breathed out by God and they are profitable to you. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy to preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season. And notice what he says to do with the Word as he preaches. Reprove people, rebuke sin, exhort people, and do it with complete patience and teaching. And again, when he said preach the Word, what was the Word that Timothy had? The Old Testament. And so I want you to understand there is much value in making sure we spend time in the Old Testament when you understand how we are supposed to read it. We read it through the light and the lens of Jesus Christ and the fact that He has fulfilled it all. And so when we read the Old Testament, we're looking for things like the way that Jesus fulfilled this, or we're looking for ways that this portrays the image of who Jesus is or who Jesus was going to be. And so what we have in the Old Testament is the fulfillment of Christ and we see that lived out in the New Testament as it's taught to us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, 
He says, now these things happen to them. And he's talking about the Old Testament. All the stories you have, listen closely. When you read a story in the Old Testament, it's not just so you can hear a good story. It was written down for a purpose and a reason. These things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for what? The reason you have a written record of it today is because it's meant to instruct you. You're supposed to be able to look back at the lives of people like David and see how you should live your life. All right? Or how you shouldn't live your life. And you should be able to learn from their wisdom and also learn from their mistakes. It's for your instruction. But it was written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The whole time they were writing it, it was for you. And that's what the Old Testament is given to us for. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44 through 45, notice what it says. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So let me ask you a question. And then he opened their minds to the Scripture. So let me ask you a question. What are the law of Moses, Genesis through um, Deuteronomy? What are the, um, the judges? What are the prophets? What are the Proverbs and the Psalms? What are they about? They're about Jesus. They were written about Him. Everything written about Him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So when we read the Old Testament, we're reading it in the light and the lens of Jesus Christ or we're reading it for our instruction. But either way, you should be able to look for both in the Old Testament as you study it. There are other ways... um, We're going through Revelation on Wednesday night right now, and so as soon as we get done with Revelation, we're probably going to the Psalms, and we're probably going to learn how to study the Psalms and what we should look for in that. But I'm not going to go through that today. The only thing I'm going to do is walk through it with you, and I've done the work ahead of time. You get to enjoy the fruits of it, okay? So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to go through Psalm 32, and again, I want you to notice that it is a masculine psalm, a masculine psalm. And basically, this word masculine comes from a root Hebrew word that means to be instructive. It means to impart wisdom. So again, what did Paul tell us in the New Testament? These things were written down for your instruction. And so when we get to this psalm, the very first thing we get in the title is the purpose of why it's written. This psalm is written down to instruct you. It's meant to teach you. It's meant to show you something that you need in your life as a Christian on whom the end of the ages has come, as you read in the Corinthians. And so, this morning in Psalm chapter 32, the first thing we see is that David wants to instruct us about something. David has lived a life in such a way that he's learned something. And now he wants to pass that wisdom on to you so that in your Christian walk, maybe you can avoid some of the mistakes that he's made. Or maybe you can enjoy some of the benefits that he has enjoyed. So first, I want you to notice the goal in verses 1 and 2. Here's the goal. 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Now here's one thing you want to look for in the Psalms. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but one of the things you want to look for is what they call parallelism. This is poetry being written. And one of the things that they did was they would try to, to say the same thing but using different words. So he didn't want to just keep saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Y'all listen to me. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. No, y'all still don't hear me. Blessed is the one whose trans... But that's what he's trying to do. But he wants to do it in different ways so that you hear it different each time, but it says the same thing. And he's able to, uh, to just expound on the point and the theme that he's trying to get across. So the goal of David in this instructive psalm is very simple. I want you to understand that there is a great blessedness in knowing that your transgression has been forgiven. And then not just that, he goes on, he said, there's a blessing in knowing that your sin has been covered And blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whom there is a spirit where there is no deceit or no treachery or no betrayal in them. When you sin, have you ever felt like you've betrayed God? And he said, when your transgression is forgiven and when your sin is covered and when God counts no iniquity, He don't charge any of that iniquity to your account whatsoever. And when you have that, there is a blessing. A blessing that David says, I want you to experience. The first thing I want you to understand is if the goal of David's instruction is that we experience the blessedness of forgiveness that he has... First off, what is this blessedness? What's he talking about? Some translations translate this word happiness. Some say, happy is the man that, or or very joyful, exceedingly joyful is the man that. But here's the thing, it's not just about being happy. It's not just about being joyful. It's about a deep-seated spiritual state that no matter what else is going on in this world, this truth brings you joy, happiness. I want you to think about the Beatitudes for a minute. Y'all remember how, how do the Beatitudes start off? Blessed is the... And here's what he is saying. Let's uh, take the first one. Uh, blessed is um, the ones who mourn. for they sh- That's not the first one, but blessed is the one who mourns, for they shall be comforted. And one of the things that he's trying to get across is this. Even though you mourn now because of the state of sin in this world, because of your own state of sin, because of the trials and the sufferings of this world, the ones that Jesus is talking to that have had their sins forgiven, even in the midst of mourning, they are still blessed. This joy, this happiness, this contentment, no matter what comes their way, they just have a deep-seated sense of joy and a deep-seated sense of happiness because they know even though they mourn now, guess what? They shall be comforted is what He says next. They know the promise of God. They know what God has said. And so as because of, because of that, as a result of that, they are blessed no matter what. What are some of the other ones? Let's see. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They may be poor in spirit. Literally, they know they're spiritually bankrupt before God. They're kind of like the Pharisee and the tax collector standing at the temple and the Pharisee said, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this man over here. Thank you that I don't do nothing wrong like he does and thank you that I give all my tithes and I praise you. Lord, just thank you that I'm so good. And you remember what the tax collector said? He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Wouldn't even come up to the place of prayer. He'd just sit there beating his chest. You remember what he said? Lord, forgive me, a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones that understand, I got nothing to offer to God. I got no goodness. Even my good deeds are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. But blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You remember what Jesus said about that man? He went back to his house justified, forgiven. There is a blessedness, a deep-seated joy that no trial or, or, or suffering can take away from when you have the promises of God in your life. And specifically, David mentions here in Psalm 32, the blessedness of what it means to be forgiven. What it means that as a terrible sinner, just like that tax collector sitting in front of the temple, Lord, forgive me. I can't even look at you because I know who I am. I know what kind of sinner I am. And yet that man walks away knowing that God has forgiven him, that his sin is covered, that the Lord counts none of his iniquity against him. So the first thing you see is the goal of David's instruction. The second thing you see in verse 3 and 4, David says, I want to teach you about my experience in sin. I want to show you. So here's the goal. I want you to experience the blessedness. But in order to experience the blessedness, you need to hear about my experience in sin. And here's my experience in sin, beginning in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. And what you have here in the Psalms is imagery. See, the psalmist is trying to portray emotion in a way. So when it uses things like, you've heard the mountains melted like wax before him, right? Well, does the psalmist really mean that he watched the mountains just melt down like wax before God? No, he's trying to use imagery to show you the greatness of God and how all creation ought to respond to Him. In the same sense, he's trying to use imagery here to get across to you what it felt like in his sin. It's kind of like in Psalm 42 where the psalmist said, My tears have been my food day and night. Does that mean that literally all he's had to eat is just tears? No, he's saying, guys, you don't know how much I've cried. I've cried so much that it's like my tears have been my meal day and night. And so when this psalmist wants you to understand the, the fullness of his emotion, he wants you to feel what he feels. Truthfully, when you read the psalms, your goal ought to be to try to get your feet into the shoes of the psalmist that wrote it. And one of the ways you do that is by looking at this imagery. And he uses this word right here in verse 3. He says, for when I kept silent. In other words, when I didn't confess my sin, I just stayed in my sin and I didn't, I didn't acknowledge it. 
I just kept living in it. Here's what the result was. My bones wasted away. Does that mean that he literally, his bones just, he got osteoporosis and his bones started crumbling up? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that literally the effect of his sin felt like death in him. For the child of God that's been born again, and you know that you are living in something or you have done something that is displeasing to God and you've not come to Him for forgiveness and you know there's something between you and your God, that's a miserable time. I thought I'd get some amens out of that. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? It's miserable. And so there may be a time that the Bible says you can quench the Holy Spirit, right? We can quench Him, we can grieve Him. And David does for a time. Actually, if you think about it, Here's what I believe the context of this psalm is. I believe the context of this psalm is David's sin with Bathsheba. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, David, uh, the Bible tells us that David was supposed to be out in battle with the other kings. That was the time of the year that they were supposed to be going out to battle. But instead, he's laid up in his bed in the afternoon. It's, it's past noontime and he's still laid up in his bed. And the Bible says he got out of his bed, he went up to his rooftop, and he was walking on his rooftop, which was customary back then. That was kind of like their patio or their deck was their roof. And so he's up on his rooftop, he's walking around, and lo and behold, he looks off and he sees this beautiful woman. And this woman is bathing. And he goes and he sends one of his servants to inquire about him. He said, who is this woman? And this, this servant comes back and he says, oh, well, listen, isn't that Bathsheba, Uriah's wife? Lays it all out there for him. And David, instead being the king, instead of listening to God, instead of being like a man that stays near to God and stays true to Him, he sends for the woman. He has... Sexual relations with the woman, and the woman conceives a child. And y'all know how the story goes. I'm not going to tell you every detail, but basically Uriah, he sends for him, he comes back and he says, hey, you need to go back to your house because first, David, instead of confessing it, instead of he just wants to cover it up. Now this is a man after God's own heart, right? Alright? This is a man that God Himself said, that's a man after my own heart. But he was a sinner. And so... Here he goes and he tries to lay it off on Uriah, but Uriah uh, Uriah won't do it because he said, how am I going to go to my house when my soldiers and my, my commander and everybody else is sleeping out in the streets because of the battle? And he wouldn't do it. David says, man, what am I going to do now? And so then he gets him drunk and he tries to get him to go again and he still won't go. So finally he calls his commander and he says, I tell you what do put him at the front of the battle where the battle gets the hottest at, and when it comes time for battle, let your men draw back, and they'll kill him. And here's how the story goes. That's exactly what happened. And Uriah ends up dying. So now David is guilty of adultery. He is guilty of sexual immorality. He is guilty of murder. He's guilty of deception. He is covered up in sin. And a period of time goes by. We don't know how long, but we know it's time for a child to be born. Because whenever God finally has had enough of letting David go his own way, He sends a man named Nathan to him. And Nathan comes to David, and Nathan tells David a story. He says, David, i got to tell you about one of the men in your kingdom. He said, there's a rich man and there's a poor man in one of the cities of your kingdom. 
This rich man has many lambs, many livestock. This poor man has one little ewe lamb. And he has raised this lamb up uh, ever since this lamb was little bitty and he has fed him uh, from the morsel, with morsels from his hand. He's got, let him drink out of his own cup. He holds this, uh, this lamb in his arms and rocks it to sleep at night. He says, this lamb is like a daughter to this man. He said, and then this rich man had a visitor come. And the visitor comes in and he wants to throw a feast for him. But instead of killing one of his own lambs, guess what that rich man did? He went and took that poor man's only lamb and slaughtered it for his guest. And David was so angered. He said, that man deserves to die. You know what Nathan says to him? You are the man. And David stopped and he said, I have sinned against God. His eyes were open and he finally realized. But during this time, this is the experience that he felt. When he kept silent, his bones wasted away through the groaning all day long. Y'all ever experienced that? You ever just laid there on your bed at night and went, oh. You try to get a deep breath and you just can't get a deep enough... Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, you are, you are keeping silent about your sin. You are not receiving the Lord's forgiveness that He freely offers. And yet, you just continue on in this. And the whole time, your bones feel like that they're just wasting away. And then in verse 4, it says, Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. So on the one hand, he feels like death. On the other hand, he feels like the weight of the world is on him. The hand of God lays heavy on him. And then he says next, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Here's another picture. Picture a cup of water in the desert heat. And what do you see coming up from it? It's just literally just drying it out, right? And that's the picture the psalmist wants. That's what his strength felt like inside of him. So that was David's experience in sin. And then notice at the end of verse um, uh, 4, he says, Selah. Now, we believe that that word means to pause and meditate. Just stop and think about this. Because if you stop and think about it, you've probably had this same experience in your life before at one time or another. Maybe it was not because of the same types of sins here. But sin in general creates a, a burden in your life that you know something is not right between me and my Maker. And so we pause and we meditate on the fact that a true child of God is tormented in their sin. Now next in verse 5, let's look at David's response to this torment. Because here's what we get. Here's what David did. Because here's one thing. Sometimes we don't respond right to it. Sometimes we just continue on forever and ever. And I thank God that He sent somebody like, like Nathan to open his eyes so that he would stop and go, you're right. That's me. I'm guilty. And so what we have that happens in verse 5 is David said, here's how I responded to, to my torment. I acknowledged my sin to you. Here's the, here's the application of it, really. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my own iniquity. And I, now he's not saying he hadn't ever because we know he did. 
But he says, I did not cover my iniquity. I confessed. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then notice the result of his response. And you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Let me just tell you this very quickly. Folks, the Lord is ready and the Lord is willing to forgive all of our transgressions. We are studying on uh, Wednesday nights in Revelation uh, chapter 3 about the last church where God, Jesus had nothing good to say about this church. It's Laodicea. Literally, He looks at this church and He says to them, You make me sick. But then down a little bit further, He says, The one whom I love, I discipline and I reprove. So be zealous and repent. Literally, a church that makes him sick, and yet he offers forgiveness freely. The Lord is ready, and the Lord is willing to forgive us from all our sins. But how many of us are like David, and we just carry on day after day in our groaning, day after day in our hand of God laying heavy on top of us, day after day feeling like death, and it literally affecting our health a lot of times. Anybody witness to that? And so the Lord is ready to forgive, and David knew this. And he says, the result of me responding to, to my torment this way is that God forgave me. He forgave my iniquity. And so we see there that godly grief produces a, um, a desire to be cleansed by God. And it goes to God acknowledging our sin. And you can find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 if you wanted to look that up. But it's a beautiful Scripture that just lays out for us what it looks like whenever we have godly grief that produces repentance in our life. And so the end result is you forgave my perversity, you forgave my depravity, you forgave the guilt of all of my sin. And now I know that even though I was bad wrong, you have completely wiped it away. And I am so thankful for what you have done. David experienced this blessedness. And instead of feeling like death, now he feels like life. Instead of feeling like um, uh, like groaning all day and night, now he feels like shouts of joy. Everything has turned around because of the blessedness of forgiveness. Now the fourth thing, verse 6, how do we apply this to our life? Because that's what David wants to teach you next. This is how you apply it. Notice in verse 6, the first word is what? Therefore, wherefore, however you want to put it. But here's the first imperative, the first command that we see in this. Therefore, here's what you do. Let everyone who is godly... He don't mean everybody that's perfect. He means everybody that has a heart for God in their life. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Why? Because He forgives. Because He's ready to forgive. And because there's no sense in living in the feeling of death and the heaviness of sin when you can have life and shouts of joy, when God can forgive you of all your iniquity. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What does that mean? There's a time coming when it can't be found. 
And so while the Holy Spirit is tugging, guess what you better do? You better answer. Because there may come a time when you don't. And here's two ways that I see of interpreting this. Because notice what he says next. He says, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. So one of the ways of interpreting this could be that it means that the he may be painting an imagery of looking back at the flood. You remember when, when uh, Noah was out preaching to the people and he was trying to get them to repent of their sin and trust in God, but then what happened when the rain came, when the flood came? God was nowhere to be found anymore for them, right? It was too late. And so on the one hand, the psalmist could be saying to us that you better offer prayer to Him for your forgiveness now before you stand before Him in judgment. On the other hand, it could be that he's talking about the discipline of the Lord. Talking about the, the reproof of the Lord. Because at the same time, I want you to understand something. David, even though he was forgiven, even though he experienced the blessedness of it, he was disciplined. His son died. Now I'm not telling you God's going to kill your kid. But I'm telling you that did happen to David. And I'm telling you it was an act of discipline because of the sin that he committed. And so he could be talking about don't wait until the discipline of God comes that makes you have to turn around. And not only that, but in the same, again, you can read all this in 1 Samuel chapter 12, I believe it is. Nathan also told him, there's going to rise one up out of your own house that's going to sleep with your wives in front of the sun, and he is going to cause evil and torment in your house. And it was his very own son, Absalom. And you can go and you can read that story just a few chapters past 1 Samuel chapter 12, and you can see the discipline of God that took place. Now, I'm not teaching you this morning that everything bad that happens in your life is a result of unconfessed sin. That's where Job's friends went wrong too. But where they were right was that it could have been. And it was right for Job to examine himself in trials and go, is this a result of unconfessed sin in my life? So it's not a bad thing for you to do that. But Job, on the other hand, he kept telling his friends over and over again, I don't have unconfessed sin in my life. And he didn't. He didn't. That was not the reason the trial was on him. But for most of us, how many of us are like Job and God can look at you and say, you're blameless and upright in all your ways? So the truth of the matter is, most of us would be very wise to look at our lives when trials and suffering come and ask ask ourselves, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Is there something that, that I need to confess before God while there is time? while there's time to confess right now. And so that could be what he's talking about here. So he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, because surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. You are a hiding place for me. Here's what David learned. Instead of me being in the rush of great waters, instead of me being under the great discipline of you, If I will come and confess my sin, here's the result of it in verse 7. If I'll pray to you, you are actually a hiding place for me. Just like the ark was for Noah and his family. Just like the mountains were for Lot and his family. 
You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And so what we see there, God is a safe place for the confessing sinner, but God and in God is the most dangerous place for a rebel. Y'all tracking with me? Now go with me to verse 8. <clears throat> and we're going to see David's counsel. Here's how he wants to counsel you from this. Notice in verse 8 he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Now there are some people that think the author changes here and that it's not David anymore, this is God talking. Well, in one sense it is. It is in the sense that God is the one that's taught David and now David in turn is teaching you. But this is still David talking because remember this is a masculine of David. I want to instruct you in this. I want you to learn from my mistakes, from my experience in sin. Don't keep silent. Don't let your bones wax old. Do not continue to let the hand of the Lord lay heavy on you. Offer prayer to Him in a time when He can be found because He will forgive. And there is such a blessedness in the forgiveness of God. Why wouldn't you? And so He says in verse 8, let me instruct you. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Here's David's counsel because here's what David has learned. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Let me tell you why I know this is David. Because this is what David did. Instead of being out with his responsibilities with the kings fighting, instead of, of, of walking on his housetop and looking at his kingdom and seeing it and turn around and walking the other way, running the other way, instead of those things, David didn't stay near the Lord. He acted like a horse or a mule that didn't have no understanding and he just did whatever he wanted to do. And now David comes to you and I and he says, guys, can I offer you some counsel, please? Don't be like a horse or a mule that has to have a bridle in it. Don't make God have to put a bridle in your bit to make you have to go. You're not a robot. You are a human being that He has opened your eyes and given you free will to follow Him or not now. And now, don't be like the horse or the mule that has to be steered and made to go every which way it goes. And how many of us can say this morning, I am usually like the horse or the mule? I thought I'd get a few more than that, but okay. All right. I'm like the horse or the mule. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't look to God. I'm not worried about His discipline. I'm not worried about His wrath. I'm not worried about His reproof. I live my own life. I'm like a horse or a mule. And the only way that God keeps me near to Him is by the flood of waters that come. Because that's when... How many of us, the only time we really turn to God is when things start going wrong in our household? You don't know how many people I see come and get in the church, especially, and I'm not talking about nobody, please. I'm just stating a fact, okay? If this hits you, just say, yeah, that's me. And that's okay because we're all in the same boat together, okay? But I've met so many people that as teenagers, they come and they, they finally get their family in church as, as teenagers. And you know why? Because that's the time that teenagers usually start deciding, 
I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's the time that they usually come in and you mark, you tell me if I'm wrong, Ronnie Alita, but they'll say to Ronnie Alita, please help me fix my kids. Please help me fix my kids. And the truth of the matter is, until things start going wrong in our life, we don't look to God. We don't turn to God. We're like that horse or that mule that won't stay near to God unless... And so here David says to you very plainly, here's your counsel. Don't do that. Don't do it. Just stay close to God. If you're supposed to be out in the battle with the kings and you're a king, guess what? Get up out of your bed and get out to do your responsibilities. Do what you know you need to do to stay right with God and it is very likely you're not going to end up where I ended up is what David is saying. But the problem is most of us are not that away. And so when we end up in that, David's counsel to you is let the godly offer the prayer at him at a time when he may be found because there is forgiveness that he has to offer. And so that's his counsel. And then finally, the sixth thing comes from verse 10. This is why David would say we need to stay near to God. Why you need? Because here's a question I'd ask. Okay, David, why is it so important that I don't be like a horse or a mule? Why, why is it so important that I stay near to God? Why do I just do what He would have me to do? And here's how he answers in verse 10. Because many are the sorrows of the wicked. Now, he's not saying the people that are unbelievers. He's talking about believers in sin here. He's saying many, here's why you need to stay near to God. Because there, here's, here's how you put it. Because sin equals sorrow every time. Sin has a passing pleasure for a time, right? But every time it only ever leads to death. That's it. It only ever leads to wrath. It only ever leads to the discipline and the reproof of God Almighty. And so He says to us very plainly, because many are the sorrows of the wicked, Sin equals sorrow, so you need to stay near to God. And then next, he says in verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. And so here's the contrast that he makes. That's another thing you look for in Psalms is contrasts that are made. And he says, on the one hand, sin equals sorrow. But on the other hand, righteousness equals blessedness. Righteousness equals being surrounded by the love of God. And you can t decide the two. You can either be like a horse or a mule that God has to always send trials and God has to always try to... And let me tell you something. If He ain't doing that, Hebrew says it's because you ain't His kid. Because if you were His kid, He'd discipline you. He would correct you. He would point you in the way that you should go. And so He says here very plainly, sin equals sorrow, but... Righteousness equals surrounded by the love of God. And then in verse 11, he closes it out with this. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. <laughs> be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, the ones that are staying near to God, the ones that are not weighed heavily down and the ones that don't feel like death and groaning all day long. Be glad in the Lord. 
Be glad. Be blessed. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so I just close this morning by just saying this. I don't think if you are a child of God, I don't have to help you understand this. You've probably already experienced it. If you are a child of God, I want to say to you this morning that you have two choices when it comes to sin in your life. You can continue to quench it to the point that God finally has to bring the flood of water in and He has to do you like a horse or a mule. And He will if you're His child. He will. Or you can recognize the sin in your life and you can say, God, I humble myself. I acknowledge my sin to You. I acknowledge that I haven't been staying near to You. I acknowledge that I'm like that horse or that mule and I go my own way. And God, I want Your forgiveness. And then your choice is to trust Him that if He says He'll forgive, guess what? He will forgive. And you can experience the blessedness that David talks about in verse 1. The blessedness of transgression being forgiven. The blessedness of sin being covered. The blessedness of no iniquity being counted towards you whatsoever. And let me tell you something. This is something that we're probably going to have to do on a regular basis. This was not just something that David dealt with one time. That's the reason why I don't believe he just connects it to the one sin. I believe this is in general when there is sin in our life. And so I want to say to you this morning, you have a choice. You can either continue to quench the Spirit, you can either continue to live in it, and eventually you're going to continue to feel the weight of the Lord. You're going to continue to feel the groaning in you and the, 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 the feeling of what feels like death in you because you know that you're not living the way that you should. Or you're going to be godly and offer prayer to Him while He can be found because there's coming a day when He won't be found. And so I'm asking you this morning to consider and examine your own life and see where you stand in this. And you can either experience the sorrow of sin or you can experience the blessing of forgiveness. And the two are so far apart you can't even imagine the difference in them. The blessing that comes with forgiveness.